0: Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger.
1: So welcome to episode 36 of Sleep Talk, the podcast talking all things sleep, and welcome again to my co-host, Dr. Moira Junger.
2: Hello, Dave, and hello, all listeners
1: moira this is actually episode 36 so what that means is that we've got to three years
2: absolutely episode a month
1: on average over the last three years well done we've done it high five who would have thought and and we're still having fun and we're enjoying talking about the sleep topics we
2: get good reviews well not formal reviews people we speak with are really enjoying it and when we don't put one up on the month every month as we hope to yeah people start ringing saying where is it we've we're waiting for the next podcast. Yes.
1: So, so, that, so that's my New Year's resolution for the new year is get get it back on track with some regularity.
2: Yes. Get uh, back to your normal David Cunnington style of being quite organised, orderly.
1: <laughs> I've been trying to soften my obsessive compulsive <laughs> disorder, boy.
2: <laughs> I know, but we need it for this. Sure.
1: <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll get it back on track. <laughs> So the theme for this month's podcast is napping. Good, bad, friend or foe? And the topics we'll try to cover and get into in our discussion is, should we nap? Is it really a good thing or is it a bad thing? If you're going to nap, how long should a nap be? I'm going to get some tips from my co-hosts about what if people can't nap because not everybody can. And are there times when people shouldn't nap and naps are bad? And so to help answer these questions, we're Great to have Thea O'Connor join us, and Thea's a wellbeing and productivity advisor and Naptivist, and she started the great resource, NAPNOW. Welcome, Thea.
0: Thank you, David.
1: And of course, Moira, my regular co-host, Dr Moira Junger, as a health psychologist will really use your expertise today to help talk about NAPS, right. and I'll give my two cents worth.
2: <laughs> Hello. Hello.
0: Hello, Dave.
1: So let's take a vote around the panel. Who's in favour of NAPS?
0: Well, as a naptivist, I guess I'm pretty unashamedly pro-napping. So more precisely, what I'd really like to see is let's just give napping a chance in our culture at the moment because it doesn't really get a lot of support. That's true. about you, Moira? What about me? Well, I would say yes, I'm
2: definitely in, in favour of naps, pro-napping. But I guess the the older I get and the the more years of clinical practice I get, I'm, I've got my own fatigue around this binary thing of things are good or bad. <laughs> so I'm going to be able to add to perhaps a bit and be a bit painful because, oh, <laughs> because obviously there's times when they can be really useful, beneficial, and there may be times when they're not so useful. So I guess that's what we're going to tease out by the end of this episode.
1: I love like naps. I, I really think. Having the ability to nap demonstrates a flexibility of thinking around sleep that I think is pretends sort of the ability to be a healthy sleeper as a lifelong thing. And my family will tell you my, that's my secret superpower is, hmm. is micro-napping. <laughs> if I've got three, three stops on the train, I could get a nap in before I need to get off. So. <laughs> so, Thea, why napping? So why is it important now and such a topical thing to talk about?
0: Yes, well, I mean, as you'd be aware, a lot of people are, are tired, or they're wired, or feeling very overwhelmed, particularly in big, you know, busy workplaces. And that's for a whole range of reasons. But what I observe is that the way we cope with that is to over-rely on what I like to call non-renewable forms of energy. So whether that's, you know, another cup of coffee, or another chocolate bar, or just a lot of stress to energize us to get us through. And, you know, non-renewables, they have their place. So I think we over-rely on them. You know, I reckon we've reached peak caffeine, that's for sure, from the people that I see. Mm-hmm. And so it's time to explore more non, more renewable forms of energy for the human body. And I, I really think the NAP is such an effective renewable energy practice that we'd just be mad not to embrace it or at least give it a go for the sake of our personal sustainability. And the other thing that strikes me about the power NAP, not so much the yes, but the short NAP, is that it really does seem tailor-made for our time-poor world at the moment where we are tired, we want more energy. And we crave a, a quick fix, and um, as we'll tease out, you know, shortly, you really can get a, a good, effective energy boost in quite a short amount of time. So the way I like to think about it is look, the science is in. There's a lot of good evidence behind the short nap. Our bodies are primed in that many of us are tired, but social uptake is still pretty slow, and that's because napping's got a bit of an image problem. You know, it tends to be associated with slacking, despite the fact it has the opposite effect. So I reckon it's time for a culture shift around this.
1: Yeah, and historically, sleep wasn't always one continuous block. There were longer sleeps at night and a shorter sleep in the day. You know, what's been Mm. the historical sort of evolution of napping and then we went away from it, now we should come back to it?
0: Well, sleep historians have told me that before the Industrial Revolution that, you know, it was a really common practice, not just in siesta cultures, probably because we were more able to work according to our body rhythms then, when we started organising our days around keeping machines going, that that was a key event that stamped napping out of our days. And I guess, in a way, we still organise our days around machines. They're not steam, you know, machines anymore. Steam engines. We've got our devices. Yeah, it could definitely be big time in human history where we need to reintroduce it.
1: So, what's the perfect nap?
0: That's an interesting question, isn't it? So, I think a perfect nap is one that you don't feel guilty about. And that it leaves you in a good state for the rest of your day, whatever that happens to be. The perfect nap it depends on a number of factors. How tired are you? How much do you need to catch up on sleep? And probably most importantly, what do you need to do next? If you want to party all night, then a longer napper nap might be, be suitable. But if you have to click back into work mode pretty quickly, then you know the shorter nap is going to be more desirable. So I'm with Maura here. It depends, I think on your situation as to what's going to be the ideal nap and timing is a critical part of that.
2: And I guess a, a shout-out to the any listener or any researcher who's involved specifically with shift work because that changes things a lot too depending on mm. time of day or time of night or time during the shift and the pros and cons of the shorter nap or no nap, whether it's 10 minutes, whether it's 20 minutes, you know, people who don't have a nap at all and the differences there. And of course, the shorter nap that the, the the power nap as we call it, is really around it's centered around the idea of not getting into a deeper sleep and therefore less risk of having sleep inertia where you can might, might wake up from the nap feeling worse temporarily at least than before the nap started. So they're the things to consider but but yeah I mean I've read some things recently that I mean sleep inertia we've we've always traditionally warned against that, mm-hmm. but I read something recently was saying you know what? You can roll with that too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not the worst thing in the world. You can feel dreadful and groggy, but that, that lifts and it passes and it's yeah. it shouldn't necessarily be a massive deterrent. That we've, I mean, my, I myself, I've always sort of been a proponent of the shorter nap. But if people are aware of the the risks, but there's also some greater benefits perhaps. So I think it's really important to not be too prescriptive about the timing of the nap, or the, yeah. the, the length. The length, yeah.
1: yeah. It's a good point to make about the sleep inertia, Laura. So... In the clinical populations that I see, so someone with narcolepsy, for example, they can absolutely do short naps and wake up feeling refreshed. Mm. But then if I see people with idiopathic hypersomnia, that sort of typical idiopathic hypersomnia, they have very debilitating sleep inertia and it isn't the sort of stuff you just, oh, well, get over it. Work. Yeah, it works that's, through right. It. that's right. It can be mm-hmm. diffi- difficult yeah. for that clinical population.
2: Yes, that's exactly, the subsection. So that's why I'm going to be painful and you you are too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just qualifying things. as I guess you can't have broad brush statements necessarily about all naps. Yeah. yeah.
1: And, I, and I liked your comment there about guilt free.
2: There, uh, is,
1: there is something yeah. to me. I think it's almost like in our modern society, the thing you've got to give yourself first before you're able to nap is the permission to take the time out. Mm. And if you can't get to step one to give yourself the permission, then you, you're not even a chance of being able to nap or have that pause.
0: Absolutely. And over the years I've come to realise that that's basically what I do with nap now is give people permission. I'm always um, a little amused whenever I give a talk and I you know, do include mention of the nap. Invariably there'll be one or two people who come up to me afterwards and it's like they tell me in hushed tones about their napping habit and it's almost as if they're confessing their... secret and they see me as someone you know who can absolve them from their guilt because I'm saying it's fine to do it so absolutely permission is key and I think partly that's because I reckon many of us still live in the shadow of the Protestant work ethic you know where our worth and even the fate of our soul was dependent on how hard we worked so the idea of you know not being seen to work hard all the time that that can actually be quite a challenging thing to do
1: yeah, and it's a work ethic. So whilst we, you know, we would call it the Protestant work ethic, you know, I see a number of people from other cultures that today still have mm-hmm. work ethic. You know, in a lot of the Asian cultures, South Asian and East Asian yes. cultures have that that same work ethic, but it hasn't come from a Protestant Christian background.
0: And then I guess it's in the work, you know, in workplaces, people don't want to be seen as a slacker, and they also don't want to be seen as someone who's letting the team down as well. And that can also come into that sense of commission. But what I've also come to recognise is that while we, um, say, workplaces, we want permission from our, say, external boss, you know, working on permission from the inner boss, that's really where it needs to start because a lot of us can have fairly hard taskmasters. Oh, I like that. Sure. I'm, I'm
1: going to steal that there. <laughs>
0: the inner boss. And the yeah.
2: Speaking of bosses, though, I mean, it is a really important practical issue that, Mm. The timing in the workplace, not only just whether it just fits practically in terms of the productivity and what the the, the tasks at hand, and and even literally you know where the space and where people could mm. are allowed to, and uh, and and we haven't even touched on those that can't nap even if they wanted to. And people who are quite sleep-deprived, they might have quite severe insomnia, and you would think they're the ones that are really great at napping, but they're mostly the people I would see clinically who say, look, I'd love to be able to nap. I've never been able to sleep during the day. And whether they can or not, that's their perception. They just feel that they can't. And so they probably need it the most. Because it does bring up the question while we're discussing this. We all have a post-lunch tip where it's a natural dip in our alertness and, uh, you know, a nap makes sense. But if people are napping, they're needing to nap a couple of hours after waking up or several times throughout their workplace day, you know, their day in the workplace, you know, you have to start thinking about is this a sign or is this excessive daytime sleepiness? And is it a sign perhaps that their sleep quality and or quantity is inadequate and perhaps that needs to be addressed as well because I think Mm -hmm. the nap is a great supplement but not a replacement for good quality sleep. I I see it as a a nice adjunct. I mean, I would nap every day if I could. I wonder, Mm -hmm. do you you get to nap often, Theo? I guess that's an interesting thing with your busy life and speaking commitments and things like that. How Does it Mm fall into your mostly daily
0: life? When I first discovered napping, which was about 10 years ago I was more tired then yeah. and it was more regular I would say two or three times a week Yeah. these days I mean I have made a lot of changes to my life and I'm not as tired yes. but I know that it's there and it's amazing what a comfort that is to know so if for whatever reason I do have a bad night's sleep or you know stuff happens in life doesn't it where you get tired mm. it's it's a wonderful comfort to know I know how to do it now and I also know that even if I lie down and don't fall asleep, I do feel restored. So these days it's probably more like once a week or once a fortnight mm. and I do it not just if I'm exhausted but just as a really great way to give my brain a bit of a chance to you know, unplug from the information superhighway yeah. <laughs> and I get benefit from that too.
1: So Theo, tell us a bit about the people you would normally work with and how you integrate napping as part of their strategies, You know, recognising that's less of a clinical population, which is more where Moira and I yes. work. But what about who you work with? Yes,
0: yeah, so look, my approach has evolved over the years. Most of my work is with workplaces, perhaps with leadership development um, programs, with teams and individuals. The focus of my work is how can we just create healthier and more sustainable ways of working? And we look at team norms and also the power of habits as, as, as part of that package. The key theme I address is how can we rehumanize our work ethic because, you know, one of the reasons that people and workers in particular are feeling not only tired but demoralised is that they feel like they're being treated like machines and expected to work, you know, work flat out from dawn until dark. But, you know, we're not machines, we're human beings and we function best when we work to a pulse, a rhythm. These days when I do seminars and workplaces, I used to lead with a nap, you know, and have a whole nap <laughs> seminar. Um, but now what I do is I embed the nat into this broader theme of how can we work a bit more in tune with our 24-hour biological rhythm and how our energy naturally fluctuates over a day. And so, you know, I put up a simple little graph and, yes, we see, oh, yeah, in the afternoon, maybe 1, 2, 3 p.m., you have that little dip in alertness. It's natural, it's bigger for some people than others, but how can we navigate the afternoon slump for those people who suffer from it? Are we just going to push on like we normally do? Well, we could, but if you're tired and push on, you're more likely to make a mistake. Are we going to have more stimulants like coffee? Well, you could, but gee, that might interfere with my night's sleep. Or, radical idea, could we actually take a 10-minute renewable energy break? So we talk about naps, movement, meditation, breath awareness, those short breaks that are proven to improve your energy. And when I present it like that, then that gets a much better reception. And then I often get emails afterwards, which, you know, make my heart sing, saying, oh, I had a nap today. And i say, how did you do it? And they'll say, oh, I just found an office and put up your nap permit on the door that says do not disturb. But how did you fill after this? And they said, oh, it so good. That's the way I tend to talk about it these days. I drop it in part of working more in tune with our rhythms. And that seems to, to so far, get a better reception than just talking about napping on its own.
1: And in that sort of setting, do people need many tools to nap? Does it have to be complicated or do you need, you know, equipment?
0: Yes, well, apart from, the, you know, the permission that we've talked about, the number one question that people ask about in the workplace is the place. They'll say, where are we going to do it? So space is an issue that needs to be solved somehow. It could be really simple depending on the culture of, you know, your workplace and also physical space available. It could be a screen and a yoga mat. It could be an office that you can book out. Some people solve the space and privacy problems through purchasing those nap pods which you can have in a public space but because they typically cover your face people then don't feel too self-conscious about you know dribbling or something like that while they're napping but yeah you know, place is the, the number one logistic issue that people would tend to ask about.
1: Yeah and Moira what about then the clinical population you work with so when would you use napping with clients or people mm. you're seeing?
2: Well we've already already briefly talked about the narcolepsy idiopathic hypersomnia group of people and they can really benefit from scheduled napping as an actual plan strategy to preemptively sort of ward off too much sleepiness and and in conjunction with their medication usually find that's hard though people find that hard in their workplaces to be some of them manage it really well other people find it really hard to have scheduled napping and other people don't really feel that they need it. And don't, all don't want it. But in terms of the insomnia clinical population, I would say nearly, nearly all, very vast majority describe that they cannot nap mm-hmm. during the day. And they, sometimes it's cultural too. They just say, oh, look, yeah, what we talked about earlier that people see there's a bit of sort of laziness or slacking off, or it's for sick people or, you know, retired people or young babies, preschool people. It's not that they don't sort of culturally identify with part of them. But I think it's, it's, some really great breakthroughs have come actually when I've, do you say to people, look, you just explore? I call it sort of explore the role of napping for you. But just see that it just might have a role that you, 20 years ago or last year, or you, you always thought it didn't have a role for you. But if you can just, let's put it in there as, but I do explicitly say it has to be a short period of time we're talking 10 20 minutes maximum maybe 30 and it does involve setting an alarm clock but knowing that setting it for say 45 minutes or 30 that you might take a little bit of time to initiate sleep but then you're up up and you know you haven't had a long sleep because i found that when i did start talking about napping people we had to be you have to be quite explicit and with your terms because some people think sleeping from one till four or five like a big three or four hour period is a nap whereas I see a nap as a very short thing like the short word that it is a very so I have to be explicit to say look I'm talking 20 or 30 or 10 minutes a very short period and it can be a great breakthrough the people it's like a priming agent they practice letting go during the day Mm -hmm. practice having not not too much pressure as well and then it can be a bit of a dress rehearsal and they get a bit of confidence back, yeah. and they get their confidence. and then they. Say, so it's been a really nice thing. Some people have emailed me. You'll know, say like, "I yeah. napped," like it's yeah. a high five. My, I, yeah. you know, I rang my daughter and I said, "I napped today." Yeah.
1: For me, it's almost like people need to be comfortable with empty space mm. and stopping. And until you can do that, mm. then napping's the next step that follows from that. Yeah. So it's almost like the first thing is be okay with empty space and pausing yeah. yeah, to allow the opportunity for a nap.
2: I would say in the CBTI world, like anyone out there who's a fellow CBTI practitioner, they would say, I think most people would say, no, don't nap. Quite strict instructions, do not nap. But I I feel that if it's a short one and it's done before well before the mid-afternoon, not too late, I don't think it seems to have too much effect on their ability to get a a big sleep if they were able to have the opportunity for a bigger sleep later.
1: Yeah, and if I'm working with someone with insomnia, I I try and also explain to them that there's phases to treatment Mm. in the really acute phase and I'm using sleep restriction. Mm. That's the phase where I'm going to be pretty strict and say, look, I want you to try and avoid napping because mm. I'm going to use that sleep debt to get you that's to sleep. That's right,
2: exactly. But I
1: want to pretty quickly shift from that mm. into a more consolidation phase, which is teaching people to be fluid in their thinking about yeah. sleep. Could occur anywhere, any time, any circumstances, and so yeah. that's when I want napping to come to come in. Yeah. So I have that phase of I'm trying to no napping, but I want that to be pretty short. Mm. and then have people comfortable developing the skill yeah, right. of
2: napping. Yeah, and it, it could be just a one-off, like one one day, a fortnight, if you, if you did have the opportunity on a, on a weekend, just, just, just to see whether it's, A, possible, and, and just to see what the effects are, because like, everyone's different. I, like, I think it's very important to be tailoring and individualising treatment as much as possible, although within the literature guidelines, of course. Yeah,
1: we've talked a bit about people who can't nap or struggle to nap. Any other things that we haven't talked about for people who aren't naturally good at napping?
0: I often encourage them to reframe it perhaps as a a lying down meditation and then they stop stressing about, am I going to fall asleep or not? That seems to help. And if some people just say, oh, my brain is just so busy and I can't control it, maybe try a guided meditation. They could gradually ease themselves off that. Um, They can also use that 10, 15 minutes just to practice healthy breathing because it's Great physiotherapists who I've worked with, they tell me that when we are horizontal, it's actually much easier to do the abdominal breathing, which is more likely to put the nervous system into the relaxation response. So it's going to be good for you regardless. So people do find those tips helpful. And along with that key instruction, don't worry if you don't fall asleep. This time out that you're giving yourself is going to reap a whole range of benefits even if you don't drift off.
1: Yeah, great. I really love some of those tips and it really resonates with coming back to that permission is almost the the first thing Mm -hmm. and then ability to pause and then the sleep and they'll all sort of follow in
0: that sequence. I also just loved your comment, David, about many people don't know how to stop and if you can't stop, you can't nap. I think one of the reasons people don't want to stop is what you said about actually feeling uncomfortable with stillness or space in their life. But also when we do stop, we actually start to feel how tired we really are because, you know, once we start to blow down, then the body starts to tell us, oh, I'm actually exhausted here. And interestingly, I remember one case of a woman who did start to nap and then she started to feel really tired and then she got really angry about all this napping business because she couldn't plough on like she used to and now she's actually starting to feel more and more tired. So they're also some of the deeper barriers that people can encounter. And I'm not sure, you know, what you find with people with insomnia when they start to nap. Do they start to encounter that backlog of exhaustion? What, what do you find there? For sure. And I think even it holds true for the overnight sleep period
2: getting better as well. Very often you get people back to a period of time where they're sleeping quite well overnight, maybe six, seven, eight hours, but they realise, they think, oh, but I'm still tired. I feel really tired. I feel really awful they realise that it's it's more than just the sleep. It's actually a whole lot of other carrying around a lot of stress. Yeah. Um and then and yeah. having to slow down, having to go into this sort of bit of a program. It's not not everything they thought it was going to be. And then they're disappointed. Yeah. So yeah, like they're napping sometimes yeah. they realise just wow, I am I am actually just really tired. I can't keep yeah. running from this. I can't keep yeah. being on the on adrenaline overdrive.
1: Yeah, and that's that's one of the ways to conceptualize it is For some of the people I see, they've been running at non-sustainable levels of nervous energy Mm. and things have manifested as insomnia. Running at high levels of nervous energy is addictive. We all want to be, you know, peak performance, you know, on our game, you know, all of those sort of terminologies. Backing off a bit from that non-sustainable levels of nervous energy can feel a bit flat or feel to people sometimes as they lose their ear. Mm. People do tell me, yeah, sometimes they don't like that feeling. Now, we'll go around the panel. For each of you, what's your take-home message about napping, Thea?
0: Mine is, look, give it a try. Experiment with it. And if you can master the nap, it is a really great life skill to have in your toolkit and that you might can then draw on it at different life stages, perhaps when you're a student studying late at night or a new parent or going through menopause. If you can nail it, it's a wonderful life skill to have in your back pocket at times when you get really tired.
2: Similar for me, I think that it's worth. I think people need to understand that it can. It's a skill acquisition process, like everything else. Um, Sometimes it's not. It's not innate. You might like driving a car or using a a particular computer. You need to have a bit of rehearsal, a bit of trial and error. Um, But it's worth it. But also, I think my take sum up is just to just to be a bit cautious about it, to just experiment with what with the length and the timing, and to be very mindful of what you want the nap for.
1: Right, and I'm um, absolute agreement with both of those comments. For someone to be a good lifelong sleeper, I want them to have fluidity of thinking about sleep, which is, yeah, anywhere, anytime, any circumstances, I'll take the opportunity. And napping's a great way to cultivate that fluidity of thinking about sleep rather than I can only do it in this circumstance and at these times. So yeah, napping, great way to develop fluidity of thinking about sleep. Thanks very much for your input, Thea and Moira. If people are looking for more information on the theme topic, I can highly recommend Thea's website, napnow.net.au. And on that website, there's a sequence of emails you can sign up for that will teach you how to nap safely and effectively. And at the end of that sequence, you can get an e-book that's a great uh, resource. Uh, There's also a really good interview on napping, sleep, sleep inertia with Drew Dawson. So I can highly recommend to check out Thea's website and resources. Uh, The Sleep Health Foundation's also got a good fact sheet on napping and a number of other good fact sheets. Moira, thank you for helping put all that together. Um, So I'll put links to all of those in the show notes. Thea, what's a clinical tip for healthcare providers that may be listening to the podcast?
0: Well, my tip is for people who are in the workplace and it can extend from individuals to team leaders. And my tip is to... Develop your own personal business case for wellbeing. Now, why is that important? Well, one reason busy workers find it hard to practice self-care on the job—I'm talking here just stopping for lunch, let alone taking a nap—is that they do fear being perceived as a less committed worker. And so, in order for you to do things like have a ten-minute walk or take a all wee allocated lunchtime or forbid take a bit taken nap, it really helps to truly believe why this is good for your business as well as your personal wellbeing. So I'd take a bit of time scripting that and even practising, you know, what would you say to others in a really relaxed and confident way? So, for example, if someone looks askance at you because you want to leave work on time, what could you say in that moment? And it could sound something like, boy, with our workload so high at the moment, we can't afford not to prioritise recovery See you tomorrow morning. To actually script, what would you say in those moments? Because when you're solid in that, you're far more likely to not feel guilty. But the other beauty of it is you're practising wellbeing out loud. And that means you'll give others permission to do the same. And that's especially true if you're in a leadership role. So my tip is script your business case for wellbeing. Try it out and start practising it at work and others will love you for it.
2: Great. Wonderful. Thanks for that. It's a wonderful clinical tip of the month.
1: So we've had that great clinical tip from Thea. Now, Moira, what's your pick of the month?
2: Well, I've got a book this month. It's actually the book I gave you for a Christmas present.
1: Thank you. Uh,
2: It's not a terrific book, actually, so it probably shouldn't be in the the, the pick of the month. (laughs) Thanks thanks for giving (laughs) it to me Moira. No, what I just... I know your extensive collection of sleep books and this is one I hadn't seen before. I thought so I thought I was right onto something new, but of course you already you had it, you already got it. But the title of the book is called Night School, Wake Up to the Power of Sleep. So I thought that sounds really great. That's that's the messages I would like people around the world to, to know. Um, and it's you know, it's really good. He's a you know, he's a professor of psychology in the UK. He's written a number of different books that have been into lots of different 30 languages and that sort of stuff so he's a renowned author it's just some things that make me a little bit concerned with one of the chapters it's called like the secret of super sleep i just think in terms of expectations and attributions and the, the psychology and the cognitions around sleep i just don't think we should be expecting or hoping any kind of super sleep i think that's a, it's a myth mm-hmm. um and that would be something that I'm sure he agrees too. I mean, people would like to have catchy titles, of course. But anyway, it's a, it's a read that I thought you hadn't have seen. Uh, you might not have seen, but, you, of course, you're right across oh, it. You know, everything is going but, on the But circle. now I
1: have a hardback copy that's signed by you, Moira, so, that, <laughs> so that'll be the keeper. <laughs> my other one's going out.
2: <laughs> so that's my pick. What's your pick of the month?
1: So my pick of the month, I've actually picked it before in an earlier podcast, but it's really topical for this month's theme, and it's a book not surprisingly, Mm. and this one's called Dangerously Sleepy, Overworked Americans and the Cult of Manly Wakefulness by Alan Derrickson, and it really does talk about that work ethic in modern westernised industrial societies about the badge of honour of tiredness and things. You know, And chapter one summarises the theme. Chapter one is Sleep is for Sissies, Elite Males as Paragons of Wakefulness. And wow, I mean, that just really sums up some of the cultural attitudes about sleep, which is relevant to what Thea and Moira and myself were talking about with napping is step one, permission to take time out, mm-hmm. which is the complete opposite to sleep is for sissies, mm-hmm. which is a, just a complete paradox, Absolutely. Which, which is where a lot of our sort of modern industrial thinking uh, about sleep is at. So you can highly recommend that uh, book. Because it is an insight into some culturally how we think about work, energy levels, and naturally then about sleep.
2: So what's in store? So we've got some good
1: topics that we're working on developing. So cannabis is something I'm getting a lot of people asking me Mm. about. It's cannabis and its use in sleep. Mm, So so that's definitely on the radar. Um, Sleep and menopause. Mm. And we had a suggestion as well from a listener to talk about devices to measure sleep.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, we need to um, revisit that because we have so, spoken about that in the past,
1: sort of, haven't we? Yeah, we definitely did. Mm. But it's two or three years on, mm. Hey, eh? Three years on. <laughs> Entering
2: uh, our fourth year.
1: Yeah, and there's lots of new devices and the devices get better and better, so worth revisiting. And, of course, the topic on sleep and food, which is another listener suggestion that we'll work on mm. for next
2: year. Very important. So thanks very much for listening. Yeah, I hope, and Don't forget to send us any suggestions at the email podcast at sleephub.com.au and of course a shout out to do a review on itunes if you do like the podcast or have any suggestions that'd be great thanks a lot this podcast
0: is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professionals advice diagnosis or treatment always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition